Lord Jesus, present in the most holy Eucharist, the sacrament of the altar, with your permission, we will now meditate together on the saving truths of our faith. And we will do what we just heard in our reading from St. Paul's letters to the Romans. Do not be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So we're looking for the transformation, the renewal of our mind, so that God can indeed inspire us greater desire to do his will. And that really is why we're here on the earth, to do God's will. We don't want to be conformed to the world, the usages, the customs, all those things that are opposed to God's way. So we need to understand exactly what it is that the Lord calls us to. And what better place to do that than in his own divine presence, right here, exposed on the altar for our adoration. Now, my name is Father Gerald Murray, and I'm very pleased to be the preacher for the 40 Hours. Your uh, beloved pastor is an old friend of mine. I knew Father Pollard when he wasn't called Father. He was a seminarian at the North American College. Uh, And like uh, most of the seminarians that I got to know, uh, he was an intelligent and devoted uh, servant of the church and was so looking forward to becoming a priest. And I knew some of the priests from the Arlington Diocese, and I said, you'll fit right in. Uh, This is the kind of priest we need, someone who is truly devoted to the church and to the Lord. And I got to know Father Pollard uh, later in New York when he was working for the Holy See Mission. And uh, in the church, there are many assignments, and he carried on very well there, serving the church at the U.N., But as another priest friend of mine once said, the best job in the church is being pastor of a parish. And that really is true, because you are the spiritual father of so many souls. And by uh, conducting uh, devout exercises such as these 40 hours, uh, you truly bring to the people what they need, which is to follow Christ and to learn from him. Now, following Christ means not following others who cast aside what Christ himself has taught. And the teaching of Christ was not always readily accepted by all of his listeners. As you know, he performed many miracles, and crowds from all over went to hear him and to see him and to beg for miracles for themselves. And there was much acclaim. In fact, the Lord turned aside that acclaim because he wanted them to understand his mission was not to be king in this world, his mission is to bring souls to the kingdom of heaven. And therefore, the miracles were signs of his divine nature and goodness, but they were not the be-all and end-all. The miracles were meant to prove the truth of his teaching, the truth of what he said. Why should we believe what the Lord taught? Well, because he obviously teaches with divine authority. He teaches with the authority of God. Now, you recall that incident when uh, the Lord taught about the Holy Eucharist. And he said, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And he said, my flesh is true true food and my blood is true drink. And some of the listeners uh, were offended by this. And they walked away. And what did our Lord say to the apostles? I'm sure you recall 
that question he asked. He said, will you also go away? Will you also go away? And that's always the temptation in life. When we hear something that we either don't like or don't understand, we're tempted to dismiss it and turn aside from it. But St. Peter taught and really spoke for all of us when he said, To whom shall we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. You have the words of eternal life. That indeed is what uh, we seek. We seek that word of God, which will bring us into the knowledge of what God has in store for us and will allow us in this life to correctly evaluate what it is that we need to do. Now, it's uh, remarked uh, that it's interesting that the Church has us uh, profess the creed at every Sunday Mass. And right after the homily, we all stand and we pray the Apostles' Creed sometimes, but more generally, it's the Long Nicene Creed, which is a true statement of what the Catholic Church teaches. Why do we do that? Well, because it's important that we remind ourselves of what we believe. Uh, We need to reaffirm our faith and truly affirm it in public in unison with other believers. It's not an empty exercise, although I'll admit even I have to read the text. The new translation is a lot better, but I haven't got it down by memory yet. But by reading it and praying it together, we come to love it even more and more. The Church at the Easter Vigil asks us to renew our baptismal promises. And at that point, the Apostles' Creed is read in question form, and we respond, I believe, I believe. That's truly what the Church asks of us. Without belief, everything we do is folkloric. It's some kind of historic tradition. We come together, light candles, priests wear garments, sometimes they use incense, uplifting music, we hope. Uh, All of that can be seen as a cultural expression. But that's not what it is. And if it's only that, why bother? You might find using your time better doing something else. Faith teaches us that what we do at Mass and in every other time we come to worship God is essential for our spiritual welfare because it's bringing us into living contact with the Lord. This 40 hours is an opportunity to remind ourselves that Jesus Christ kept his promise. He said, I will not leave you orphans. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And he is here with us and he teaches us. He teaches us what we need to believe and as a result, how we should act. Now, in order to believe well, you have to study. Uh, Studying our faith is a really essential aspect. And, of course, we do that as children. And if we had the benefit of a good catechism program, good CCD, then we learned a lot. If we didn't, then we have to catch up. And that's one reason why St. John Paul II issued the Catechism of the Catholic Church. That document is a summary of all the teachings of the Church explained in language that responds to modern challenges. And it really is a very useful uh, instrument in the hands of the faithful. The Church teaches us precisely because many of those teachings have been challenged. Uh, The Catechism of the Catholic Church was meant to summarize all the teachings of the faith in in the face of modern denial. 
And we should understand that Second Vatican Council faced uh, many difficulties in the modern world, and then the Catechism summarized the teaching of the Council and the eternal teaching of the Church as presented in the Scriptures and in tradition. Now, the challenging times we face have particularly to do with the nature of the family. And as you may know, the Pope will be coming to the United States in September of this year. He will be in Washington, D.C. He'll also be in New York. And I'll just say as a little sidebar, my parish includes the United Nations. So it's an interesting parish. It's on East 47th Street in Manhattan. So literally, the territory of the U.N. is part of my parish. So when the Pope comes to the U.N., he's in my parish. Sad to say, he won't come into the church, but he'll be in the parish. And we're very grateful for that. But that's only a stop on the way. The Pope is heading to Philadelphia for the World Meeting of Families. And in this regard, I encourage you to read this small book that was produced by the Archdiocese of Philadelphia in conjunction with the Holy See. It's called Love is Our Mission, The Family Fully Alive. The World Meeting of Families is meant to help us to appreciate the goodness of family life, the crucial role the families play in bringing the faith not only to their own children, but to all those around them that they influence. And in our modern culture, in which family life is often under attack, uh, this is a very salutary remedy, very useful. So this book, question and answer form, uh, beautifully illustrated, teaches some of the essential things we need to know about the family. Now, that will come approximately uh, three weeks or two weeks before the Synod on the Family in Rome. And when Pope Francis uh, was elected shortly thereafter, he announced that he wanted to have two synods on the family. A synod is a meeting in Rome of selected bishops. And at the synod, uh, he wanted things discussed, how the church can help promote family life in the world. Now, as a result of that first synod that was held uh, last October, there was a lot of discord because, unfortunately, some of the bishops and cardinals present made some fairly uh, outrageous statements. And one of those uh, has to do with divorce and remarriage and Holy Communion. So I want to look at that uh, a little bit and see what that means. Uh, we have a beautiful teaching of the Church in that regard, and we need to understand it so that we can explain it to others. Now, the Church... Uh, teaches that uh, divorce is not a desirable thing. And, uh, but it also teaches that in and of itself, divorce is not an obstacle to receiving Holy Communion. And this is something that uh, is not clear in the minds of some people. But the question here is not can divorced people receive communion? Can people who are divorced and then enter into a second invalid marriage? Can they receive communion? So I want to talk a little bit about that because uh, this is causing a lot of confusion right now among some people. They think that the Pope is endorsing this because certain cardinals have spoken out in favor of it, but the Pope has not endorsed it, and we're waiting for the Synod in which we can more clearly explain the teaching of the Church and uh, hopefully uh, convince uh, the whole world, certainly the faithful Catholics, that the erroneous teachings put forward by some of the cardinals need to be put aside. Let me just read uh, first uh, from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. 
And this is in regard to the nature of marriage. The Lord Jesus insisted on the original intention of the Creator, who willed that marriage be indissoluble. He abrogates the accommodations that have slipped into the old law. Between the baptized, a ratified and consummated marriage cannot be dissolved by any human power or for any reason other than death. So that's the nature of marriage. It's an essential aspect of the divine plan. The purpose of marriage is to bring together a man and a woman so that they might, God willing, uh, have progeny, bring new life into the world, increase the species, and in the church, of course, uh, bring new souls to God through the reception of baptism. This is uh, going right back to Adam and Eve. It's what God intended. It's beautiful. It's a source of joy. It's the greatest happiness. I uh, think about the wonderful example my own parents have given me and continue to give, thank God. And then m- many couples that I've married uh, as a priest, I've been a priest 30 years now, a uh, lot of marriages, a lot of funerals too, but ma- more marriages, uh, thank the Lord. Although priests have a little joke. Sometimes they prefer to celebrate funerals because dead people don't talk back. And sometimes it can be a little difficult uh, getting people to agree where the flowers should go or what the organist can play. But in reality, marriage preparation is one of the nicest things we do as priests because we know that the joy that the couple has in view of exchanging vows is intended by God. This is what God means uh, or plans for the vast majority of the human race. And it is uh, something that is beyond the power of man to alter. This is something that in the old law, Moses was allowed by God because of his hardness of heart or the hardness of heart of the people of Israel to permit divorce. But the Lord said from the beginning, it was not like that. And this, uh, actually, the book of Genesis and the discussion of the marriage of Adam and Eve one of the prime uh, teachings of St. John Paul II. He said, if you meditate on Genesis, you understand the whole purpose of human life. Now, the Catechism continues, the separation of spouses while maintaining the marriage bond can be legitimate in certain cases provided for by canon law. If civil divorce remains the only possible way of ensuring certain legal rights, the care of children or the protection of inheritance, It can be tolerated, but it does not constitute a moral offense. So the church will allow people to separate who are married if there's a sufficiently grave reason. And a civil divorce can even be entered into precisely to protect rights. And that's important because marriage is regulated by both the law of the church and the civil law. And the church uh, does not wish couples to separate. In fact, they're always encouraging a reconciliation In fact, in the law concerning marriage tribunals, when a couple or one individual comes to a tribunal seeking an annulment, the first thing that the judge is supposed to do is try and see if a reconciliation is possible. Uh, The church's effort is always to try and support uh, forgiveness and loving union. When that's not possible, though, uh, this can be tolerated. Now, the divorce that occurs does not, though, break the bond of the marriage. It still exists. So marriage is something you enter into knowing that it's for life, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, and it doesn't depend on your ongoing will. 
It is something that is, in fact, established by God. As Fulton Sheen once wrote, it takes three to get married. You, the man, the husband, the wife, and then the third, God. Because God establishes that bond once you exchange the vows. So no human law and no church law can undo that. That is something uh, that is so important to remember. And this is where Jesus' teaching is now being contested. Because, uh, unfortunately, some of the leaders are saying that if a man separates from his wife and there's no possibility of them reconciling, well, then he is entitled to a new wife and she's entitled to a new husband, and they should not be denied Holy Communion. Now, they say that this is simply a church discipline denying them communion, but in fact, no. It's a recognition of the truth of what Jesus says. If someone is living in an adulterous relationship, they are not suitable to receive Holy Communion. And they get called by God to conversion of life. They don't get a false consolation by saying, if I receive communion, everything must be okay. Now, the uh, divorce culture that we live in uh, produces a lot of disorder and sadness in individual lives. And my purpose here is to uh, ask us to pray for all those people who have difficulties, uh, because, of course, they deserve our sympathy. But it is false sympathy to pretend that they weren't married. And it's false sympathy to say that they're entitled to receive Holy Communion. Now, in the case of uh, a divorce that happens and the spouse remains faithful and does not marry another person, they continue to receive communion without any problem. And that, indeed, is a great benefit and consolation. By being faithful to the Lord, uh, they are, in fact, living their vocation, their fidelity to their vows, even when they don't have the consolation of cohabiting with their spouse. And there are many couples who are uh, doing this. Uh, one of my little side lights is I do some radio commentary for Relevant Radio. And I'll put in a little pitch for that right now. Relevant Radio is a national Catholic radio network. Uh, it's completely loyal to the church, to the Holy See. And we were discussing this problem of cardinals saying that divorced and remarried people can receive communion. And a woman called in and said, Father, I'm so glad to hear you're talking about this because my husband and I have been separated for quite a few years. I never once thought of going to communion, and I wouldn't think of doing it at all. And I told that woman that she's doing the right thing. God bless her. And she gave witness to her fidelity to her vows that, indeed, there's something more important than simply having it your way, being able to say, well, since I don't really like that marriage, maybe we can just forget about it and start again. No. What we, uh, what we commit to in the sight of God and what God establishes is what we respect and love. Now, this question uh, leads to uh, the question of, well, what is nullity? What is, a, what is an annulment? And that certainly is something that uh, we need people to understand. A declaration of nullity is, is not a dissolution of a marriage. A declaration of nullity is a statement that there was no marriage from the start because of some defect. And the church tribunal's uh, duty is, when presented with a petition, to examine the facts and see if for some reason the marriage vows entered into are not valid because of some defect in the vows or some incapacity on the part of the person, uh, one of the persons who exchanged those vows. 
Now, when people raise this question of nullity, uh, some of them are uneasy with it. Uh, and certainly that's not something that uh, is always discussed by people. But we should consider it because it's in the law of the church and it is, in fact, uh, an act of justice on the part of the church to consider your petition. But it is not, of course, a dissolution of the marriage. It's not Catholic divorce. It's a recognition that in human affairs, mistakes can be made which uh, affect the entering into of a contract. Now, I don't want this to be a canon law lecture tonight, but I thought it would be useful to review what's going on. Uh, the question of whether those who have no annulment yet enter into a second marriage uh, is, is a practice the Church can approve. St. John Paul II decided this in 1994. And at the time, the doctrine of the faith, the congregation that issues doctrinal statements, was run by the man who became Pope Benedict XVI. And this is what they wrote. The document went out under the signature of uh, Cardinal Ratzinger, but with the approval specifically of the Pope. They wrote in this document, The mistaken conviction of a divorced and remarried person that he may receive Holy Communion normally presupposes that personal conscience is considered in the final analysis to be able, on the basis of one's own convictions, to come to a decision about the existence or absence of a previous marriage and the value of the new union. However, such a position is inadmissible. Marriage, in fact, both because it is the image of the spousal relationship between Christ and his Church, as well as the fundamental core, and an important factor in the life of civil society is essentially a public reality. So what they mean here is that you can't determine the state of your marriage simply by asserting that there was no marriage and therefore I feel entitled to a second marriage. If that's your contention, that has to be submitted to a church tribunal. And based on the evidence, they will come to a decision. This is an important uh, fact because we live in a very individualistic society in which conscience is misunderstood. Misunderstood profoundly, Pope Pius XII said, it is the duty of conscience to discover the truth, not to create it. Uh, we discover the actual state of affairs. We discover reality, and then we conform our lives to it. And by the way, that's the definition of sanity, to be in the real world and to understand it on its terms. So when a cardinal says, well, people whose marriage failed, they're entitled to more uh, than what we think they're entitled to, the answer is anyone is entitled to what the church offers, but they're not entitled to demand of the church what the church cannot offer them. And this uh, is a topic you're going to see discussed more and more, uh, but it's quite clear the church's teaching is not malleable. It can't be changed at the will of man. It is something, in fact, that brings joy to us precisely because it is consistent and irrefutable. Now, there's one thing I will mention which is sometimes not understood, that sometimes people get remarried and have children, and then they say, well, the church would be cruel to force them to separate because then who's going to raise the children? And the church says in that case, for serious reasons such as raising children, if the couple cannot split, then they have to live as brother and sister. In other words, they don't live <clears throat> as married people. They live separately and observe chastity. 
And this solution is applicable if there's no chance of scandal being given, meaning leading other people into sin by thinking that uh, divorced people can receive communion if they're living with someone who's not their husband or their wife. And in the modern context, that uh, scandal is hardly given, it seems, very often, because nobody asks anybody anymore, are they married? In fact, that's one thing Father Pollard and I were talking about a few years ago when I prepare couples for marriage, the idea of them being together before they get married, unheard of. Nowadays, it's pretty common. And that's a moment when we literally call them to conversion and say, look, if you want to ask God to bless your marriage, you have to show him that you want to live by his law. So therefore, chastity before marriage is not simply a rule. It's a, it's a sign of your faith, and it's a sign of your true love of God, that you come to the church not to have a white dress and a procession, but rather you come to receive a sacrament and a blessing. So the brother and sister solution is, uh, has been taught by Catholic theology for a long time, but it is something uh, that many people don't understand, and it is applicable in cases. So when I was preparing this uh, series of talks as part of the 40 hours, I thought it might be important to bring this up because you, too, are missionaries of the truth to other people. People who know that you're practicing Catholics think you can answer questions. Hopefully you can answer it a little better on this topic afterwards, but there's a lot of good writing that you can consult on the matter. Now, another question that comes up um, is same-sex marriage. And this, indeed, is something that has come sort of like a steamroller uh, over the United States and the church needs to respond to this. And uh, indeed, this is where an area where it's going to be a lot of action in the next couple of months because of the United States Supreme Court. Now, you told me uh, when I was a first grader uh, in uh, Catholic grammar school that two men or two women could get married to each other. I'm sure the nun would have laughed me out of the room or probably pushed me out and said, go to the principal. Uh, this is not what's happening in this country, but it is indeed what is happening. And forced upon us, uh, but mainly by judges, remember that string of referendums where it was always voted down, but then public opinion changed, and it seems now we're in the, heading in a bad direction. How does this affect you and me? Well, we want to live in a society where everyone can share a common truth, meaning a, a correct understanding of reality. And marriage is not something that we created. It's something that God established and then we ourselves discover and live according to it. Now, the bishop of this diocese, Bishop Laverde, wrote a document back in 2006, along with Bishop DiLorenzo of Richmond, in which they addressed this question. And it's a very good document. Hard to believe it's eight years old now, but, uh, and the challenge is with us. But let me just read a couple of sections from it. Marriage properly understood was built into our nature right from the beginning. In our understanding of marriage, is, in fact, our understanding of marriage is bound up in our understanding of creation itself. And that really is the primary thing we have to say. A man marrying a woman is not a Catholic prejudice. It's not a peculiarity. It's not like fish on Friday in the old days and during Lent. Uh, no, marriage between a man and a woman is as natural as drinking water uh, and walking outside in sunshine. 
These are things that just happen. These are things that are built into our nature and built into reality. It is the primary means that God established for uh, creating uh, the human community, certainly for the procreation of children. And then the first educators of children are their mother and father. Now society as a whole later enters in to help in that education process, and socialization makes many families into a family of a nation and, and a community and things of this sort. But it all starts with God's plan. There is no hostility between man and woman in the plan of God. There is complementarity. And uh, indeed, this is what we seek uh, when we're faithful to the Lord's command, be fertile and multiply. We participate in God's glorious plan for the continuation of the human race and the expansion of the church. This is the great joy that marriage produces. And this, the Pope John Paul II called it a communion of spouses. So the union that they form is mystical, and it brings happiness because it's based on living according to what God intends. Now, as a priest, we make uh, the sacrifice to serve the church of imitating Christ, who was not married. But one of our primary missions is to promote married life and the education of children uh, as a means of fulfilling God's will. And it is a great joy. It is a great joy to see happy families and to see how this is all part of God's plan. We need to defend this uh, in law if possible, although even if that's not possible, we still have to defend it in the order of ideas and in the order of social uh, relationships. We should never say that the Catholic Church's position should be a tolerated prejudice, which seems to be uh, what we're accused of all the time, that we have something against persons with homosexual temptations and problems because we're telling them that they can't marry. Well, the answer is you can marry, you just have to marry according to what marriage is. And if you call something else marriage, you're falsifying reality. Now, the Catechism says the marriage covenant by which a man and woman form with each other an intimate communion of life and love has been founded and endowed with its own special laws by the Creator. And the law of uh, indissolubility is the fundamental law, that this relationship is meant to endure and perjure. But the basis of it is the, the complementary creation of man and woman. It's interesting, when you consider uh, the Genesis account of the creation of Adam and Eve, that God created Adam, then he created all the animals, and he said, I cannot find a suitable partner for the man. Put Adam to sleep, took out the rib, formed the woman, and what did Adam then say? Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Now he finally sees something other than his own reflection in the mirror. Now he sees the one for whom he is meant. And she, the female side of the story, finds precisely in Adam the equal but different uh, person who will allow the two of them to become uh, propagators of the human race. And then the Lord said to him, of course, be fertile and be fruitful and multiply. So the, uh, the expansion of the human race uh, begun by God continues with our cooperation. That's why marriage exists. And for the good of the spouses and the children, that relationship is not supposed to end uh, by the will of man. It is meant to continue. Uh, this surety that is provided to the couples 
uh, allows them to get through the difficult times and gives them support and strength uh, against any temptation that comes. Now, of course, uh, the church is very sympathetic to people who have difficulties in marriage, but uh, we do not say that you can break up a marriage or you can have two men marrying each other or you can have polygamy. Am I making a point here about polygamy? Absolutely. Absolutely. When the United States admitted Utah, they had to forswear polygamy. And there were a lot of reasons for that in the law, but the essential reason was it offended the Christian sense of the United States uh, government, uh, which was that marriage, uh, that the new law of Christ eliminates polygamy and all for the good. So now we have both Muslim and Mormon uh, practice perhaps coming our way courtesy of the Supreme Court. Uh, this is not something to look forward to, but we as Catholics must maintain our position. What God has created, man cannot alter in any way. Now, sometimes people wonder, does God want me to be happy? And, uh, of course, the answer is yes, but it's on his terms, not our own. Man's happiness on his own terms, that's Adam eating the apple. Uh, that's man proposing that he knows better than God. That's when you and I make big mistakes in life, particularly big sins. We say, my happiness is found in doing something that God didn't provide for. And it's the false and illusory happiness that comes with asserting an independence that really can't be asser asserted. We're not independent of reality nor of the Lord. When we admit reality and recognize it, then we find our joy. So marriage can only be between a man and a woman, and we have to uh, affirm that, and not simply for uh, the sake of saying, well, you know, we don't want the Catholic Church being bothered. So, no, we assert this for the good of everyone, all of our fellow citizens, all the people on the planet. If marriage is falsified, then every other institution in, in society can likewise be falsified. And falsification, that used to be the specialty of communists, they would create false societies in which everyone knew that the government was lying, but they went along with it without any choice. We should not be in that position. But if we do, we need to be witnesses of the truth. This is what uh, Bishop Laverde wrote at the end of this document. Preserving and promoting marriage is an integral component of our shared civic responsibility. As Pope John Paul II wrote, the future of humanity passes by way of the family. It is therefore indispensable and urgent that every person of goodwill should endeavor to save and foster the values and requirements of the family. So indeed, your pastor has been bringing this subject to your attention in the bulletin, and uh, you're all sophisticated Internet users, uh, plug-in Catholic marriage, and why the Church is against same-sex marriage, and I think you will understand that you too have an important role in bringing to others the knowledge of the beauty of God's plan. Now, third challenge I'll, I'll mention, only because it really bothers me a lot, is the so-called transsexual rights movement. And this, indeed, is a challenge for us uh, that is unbelievable. I was a Navy chaplain for 11 years as a reservist and uh, appreciated what the Navy and Marine Corps and Coast Guard do, in particular, by personal experience. The idea that a sailor can walk up to the commanding officer and says, I'm now a woman, 
and I want to wear women's uniform, and I want to live in a women's barracks, and I want to act uh, like a woman, etc., etc. Or that a woman could come to the commanding officer and the Marine Corps and say, I'm now a man, and I want to be assigned to a combat unit. Uh, is this possible? It is possible with the wrong kind of leadership in the government. It should never get to that point, and we have to make quite clear that you are what you are, you don't create yourself. You are what you are, it comes from the Lord. Pope Benedict XVI addressed this issue in, Jan in December of 2012, uh, where he said we have a very new challenge to the church where the order of reality is rejected, even as far as concerns who we are. And it was interesting, he quoted the chief rabbi of France, a guy named Gilles Bernheim, and he had written a book because France is one of the leaders in this so-called gender theory movement. Let me just read a little bit of what Pope Benedict said. The chief rabbi of France has shown in a very detailed and profoundly moving study that the attack we are currently experiencing on the true structure of the family, made up of father, mother, and child, goes much deeper. While up to now we regarded a false understanding of the nature of human freedom, as one cause of the crisis of the family, it is now becoming clear that the very notion of being, of what being human really means, is being called into question. He quotes complementarity to each other for a lifetime, for the benefit of each other and their family. He showed there the famous saying of Simone de Beauvoir, one is not born a woman, one becomes so, is at the foundation of what is happening now with this so-called gender theory. And I'll just read just one more sentence. According to this philosophy, sex is no longer a given element of nature that man has to accept and personally make sense of. It is a social role that we choose for ourselves, while in the past it was chosen for us by society. This profound fault, the profound falsehood of this theory and of the anthropological revolution contained with it is obvious. Very, very true. And I hesitate to bring these topics up, but our Lord wants us to defend the good order of nature. He wants us to defend the right way of living. And we should never, out of a false sense of sympathy, say, that's true. If you think you're a man and you're really a woman, you're not really a woman, you are a man. And we should never tell children, you can decide what you want to be when you grow up, not as regards being a fireman or a lawyer, but whether you want to be a woman or a man. Not the way it is. This is a manipulation of nature. And we have to defend family life as part of our duty as Christians and help people with problems. Now, the question comes up in the end, is it really worth fighting over all this because we annoy a lot of people? Uh, do we want to annoy people? The answer is sometimes. Uh, we can never get through life being friendly to, to or being friends of everyone. We can treat them in a manner that is worthy, but some people uh, need to be rebuked simply by stating the truth to them in love. And that is something that we will have to do from time to time. Uh, our main issue will be can we pass the faith on in a proper understanding uh, to those with whom we have any influence. And in general, that will be family members and friends. If we're a CCD teacher, it will be our students, fellow parishioners, and occasionally we'll get into debates with other people. But what should we do in this regard? Well, pray and study. Learn the teaching of the church. Ask God's assistance. 
and then support efforts by the Pope, by the bishops, to defend the good of society. Public morality is an important part of the mission of the Church uh, because we don't want to see the innocent suffer. And that truly is what happens when falsehood becomes the law of the land. So as we continue our evening prayer tonight, uh, we should thank the Lord for the knowledge of the faith that we've received and pray for the courage to defend it and the grace to understand it better. And in this regard, we go to Our Lady. She is called Queen of Families, and we ask her to give us both her love and her guidance so that we know how to bring the truth of Christ to those around us.